Our reading this evening is taken from Amos 9. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Do they dig down to the depths of the grave? From there my hand will take them. Do they climb up to the heavens? From there I will bring them down. Do they hide themselves on the top of Carmel? There I will hunt them down and seize them. Do they hide from me at the bottom of the sea? There I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds this lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Ker? Surely the eyes of the Sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword, all those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, the planter with the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. As uh, Dan said a little bit earlier on, we come to the end of uh, Amos this evening, and we find in uh, chapter 9 that it is both a a final word and uh, a final word um, uh, to Israel, 
going off the rails as she is, uh, but also the glimpse of uh, a new beginning, a glimpse of a new, rebuilt, renewed, restored Israel. One writer says this, which I thought was helpful, Amos brings audaciously hopeful words at the end of a relentlessly negative book. Does that resonate with you, I wonder? How have you found Amos? Are you relieved that it is coming to an end, or do you want more? I think uh, wherever you stand on that, we would all agree that it is a sobering book. I think we would agree that there are many times actually where we, we rejoice as we read Amos because we rejoice, in fact, in a God of justice who has said, actually, I'm not happy with the status quo of injustice and exploitation. I am going to judge it. I am going to do something about it. I'm a God of justice and compassion, and we rejoice at that. But, of course, it is sobering, too, because we recognize, again, as Dan said a little earlier, that we see reflections of ourselves in that which is said and by Amos, as he catalogues the various sins of the nations and of Israel. We know ourselves to be sinful. We know ourselves to play some part in the brokenness of our world. It is a sobering book. What I want to do this evening is to think about how Amos, the book of Amos in its entirety, helps us to adore Jesus Christ helps us to adore both the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus said, of course, that the Old Testament was all about him. When he rose and he walked on the Emmaus Road with a couple of his disciples, he said, the entire Old Testament is about me. The entire Old Testament points to me and is fulfilled by me. That includes, of course, the book of Amos in its entirety. And I want to think, therefore, about how the book of Amos points to the Lord Jesus such that it magnifies him, such that it exalts him, such that it makes much of his gospel, and so that we uh, adore him, and so that the book of Amos equips us as his new covenant people, this side of the cross, his church, his people now, to be both sober towards our sin so that we battle it, so that we take it seriously, and at the same time entirely secure in his grace and forgiveness. Because that is actually the only true power in which we can successfully battle sin. I've got two headings uh, this evening, which I hope will help us navigate Amos 9 and help us to uh, think about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is this. Uh, We don't need the first slide yet. But the first point is this, the end of the old with the death of, oh, all right then, the death of old Israel. Yeah, get on with it. Okay, I found <clears throat> The death of old Israel, verses 1 to 10. The end of the old with the death of Israel. Have a look at verses 1 to 10, page 923. So uh, clearly the language is of an earthquake, the Lord at the temple, and it's being shaken, and, uh, which is this earthquake that Amos has spoken about several times in the book. But actually, that's a precursor to a far greater shaking that is going to bring down the roof on the house of David, the house of David, the dynasty of David, God's people. Disaster is coming in the form of foreign invaders. And as you read through these opening verses of chapter 9, we discover that there is going to be no hope of escape for Israel this time. Because behind the jackboot of foreign invaders lies the justice of God. 
from which there is no earthly escape. And so Amos says you can run to the mountains, you can dive to the depths. In fact, you can go to the grave and you will not outrun God's justice. You will find God convening his court. And this then is the end of Israel uh, or the era of Israel as God's national people to whom he reveals himself and through whom he works uniquely is drawing to a close, Amos says. But while this might be the end of an era, this is not going to be an eradication. Uh, God's judgment is going to be national in its scope, but it's not going to be indiscriminate in its nature. Those who seek the Lord will live, chapter 5. God says he will preserve a remnant. That's what he's talking about in verses uh, 7 to 10. He'll preserve a remnant. God will strike the house of David, but as verse 11 says, a tent, I think to use the NIV, a hut, a tent will remain. There'll be a remnant. Why will there be a remnant left? Well, because God made a promise. And God keeps his promises. And the promise was this. He made it to a man called Abraham thousands of years before the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, through you and through your descendants, I will put the world right. I will heal the world. I will restore a people and I will restore the world. And I'll do it through your descendants. It was a promise to Abraham and it was, of course, also a promise to the world. Out of this remnant of Israel... God will bring a faithful saviour who will do that which he promised Abraham and which he promised the world. And the world, of course, had to wait 700 or so years uh, to meet him after Amos. If you ask the New Testament writers, who is Jesus, they would have given you several answers, all of which would have been complimentary, um, but well, both complimentary of Jesus, but also mutually complimentary, you know what I mean. They would have said he was uh, the son of David, they would have said he was a prophet, a priest, uh, a king, uh, they would have said he was a son of God. They also would have said, and do say, that he is the true Israel, that he is the faithful remnant. And I think it is that that is the key to opening up the book of Amos so that it leads us into a life-transforming adoration of and assurance in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He is the fulfillment of Israel. And that means two things. The first is this. Jesus lives the life God's people were called to live. Jesus lives the life God's people were called to live. That old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, is something of a cliche, but there is some truth in it. And we've seen it, of course, as we've gone through the book of Amos, we've seen how particularly those in positions of power uh, have misused their power. Those uh, with wealth have misused those, uh, that wealth. As you read through Amos, as you then gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ, I think you see something afresh of his excellency, his his moral, ethical, social, personal excellency. In a world in which the poor are exploited and sold as a means to an end, Look at Jesus. We adore him, don't we? We adore him whose 
Riches were infinite and inexhaustible, and yet who chose to become poor for our sakes, who chose to associate with the outcast, who made the poor and the outcast and the ordinary his disciples, those he chose to share supper with, those he chose to heal and spend time with. For such as them, he himself was sold. In a world in which the powerful can sexually exploit the vulnerable and we discover that Harvey Weinstein appears to be just the tip of the iceberg, do we not adore the Lord Jesus when we look at him in the Gospels for the way he treats people, particularly those of the vulnerable, those of lower status? As you look at the way he treated the women in the New Testament, how he drew near to those who were shamed and identified them in, with them in such a way that he himself became shamed. People pointed at him. He who was morally, ethically perfect allowed himself to be the butt of jokes and to be pointed at and shamed because he chose to spend time with the shamed so that, in fact, he could ultimately take their shame from him and bear it on himself, undergoing the full shame of the cross to free them from that shame that they might flourish. There's something extraordinary about the Lord Jesus as you read through the Gospels. In a world where justice is bent and taxes by the corporations so often evaded and systems exploited and used for personal gain, as you read through the book of Amos and as you look at our world around us, don't we adore him who is the true judge of all, who is the true judge of all and yet gladly accepts the unjust verdict of a human court so that he could bear our penalty? Far from exploiting the judicial system, He is willingly exploited, in a sense, by it for our sakes. In a world where power is so often wielded for self-exaltation and comfort, do we not adore him who stilled the storm with a word and yet checked his power to remain on the cross for our sakes? You see, as you go through the book of Amos, or indeed any book like this in in, in the Old Testament, as you look at the world, as we look at our own lives, thinking particularly the book of Amos, I think it's a really helpful exercise to look at the sins of God's people there and the gravity of them and to step back and say, how is Jesus such a beautiful contrast to this? What did it look like in the life of Jesus to be the exact opposite of this, to do the exact opposite to this, to inhabit a life that was precisely opposite to this? we spend enough time adoring the Lord Jesus as we read through the Gospels, just meditating on his excellency. Be a good time to do it, Holy Week. So often, I've mentioned before, but it's still true, it's still my perennial battle that I come to the Scriptures for information. What should I learn from this? What's the key truth from this? What should I take from this? What should I do with this? Uh, For me, uh, quite often, as I've said before, it is often the case of, okay, it's a Wednesday morning. What am I going to say from this on Sunday? And it's a reminder to me that first we read to adore the Lord Jesus Christ, to meet him. 
It's, it's good to get information. It's good to learn truths about the Lord Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. But we do so in order to adore them, to gaze on him. Because it is, in fact, as we gaze on him, as we adore him, that we are truly transformed by him, that we can put that which we learn into practice. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, with unveiled faces we contemplate the glory of the Lord Jesus and are transformed from one degree of splendor to the next. There's something about looking at the Lord Jesus Christ that is transformative. Tim Keller, I know I quote him a lot, but he's very good on this says this, spiritual transformation does not come like moral reformation, restraining the heart by looking at the rules and conforming. Spiritual transformation comes from looking at Jesus Christ and being melted with spiritual understandings of his person and work. Ultimately, it is our affection for the Lord Jesus that drives out our affection for sin, ultimately. And indeed, it is our affection for the Lord Jesus that drives our affection for others. We've spoken a lot um, over the last few weeks about the call on God's people in the book of Amos to reflect God's compassionate nature to the world in word and deed, and that is good and that is right. The question becomes, what is going to empower that? Because it's hard. What is going to empower, for instance, our compassion And I think in the first instance, it is recognizing our own need of compassion and delighting in the fact that Jesus, at great personal cost, made us the objects of his compassion and his ongoing compassion. I love this quote from the uh, American um, theologian of many hundred years ago, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who said this, Though in heaven every knee bows to him, And though the angels fall down before him, adoring him, yet he treats his people with infinite condescension, love, mildness, patience, and endearment. Treats us infinitely patiently, infinitely lovingly, infinitely gently and mildly. The Lord of all glory, the one who holds the universe in his hand treats us like this because we need to be treated like that. And as we recognize ourselves to be in ongoing need of his compassionate touch, well, I think it is that above all else that then empowers us, does it not, to reach out to others in compassion. It's also that, I think, which encourages us when we fail, when we fall short. Because Amos not only magnifies the person of Jesus by being a contrast as we see Jesus living the life that Israel was called to do, but we also see, of course, Jesus dying the death that God's people deserve to die. Amos uh, exposes many of the sort of sins that Jesus would be innocent of, but would choose to identify with It expresses, therefore, the depth of judgment that Jesus would willingly bear. The descriptions of God's judgment in Amos are fulsome, they're vivid. Sin is no small matter in God's universe, and justice is no small matter either. Listen to some of the language that um, Amos has used to describe God's judgment. He talked about uh, um, his judgment being uh, uh, crushing. 
He talks about uh, God's, um, the people being destroyed. He talks about it deserving uh, exile. He talks about it uh, bringing darkness even in, in, in the middle of the day. He talks about it being a famine of the word. He talks about, in chapter 9, did you hear about being bitten by a serpent and being slayed by the sword? There is lots of language. What do we do with all of this language of judgment on sin? What we do is we use it to exalt and magnify the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israel, who died the death God's people deserved to die. We gaze afresh at the Lord Jesus, who rides into Jerusalem as the divine king, who comes to bear this for us. The one who is a week away from being, as Isaiah puts it, crushed for our iniquities. The one who is going to be exiled from God. As he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who's going to be for a period of time cut off from loving communication with his father. He'll suffer a famine of the word, all right. The temple, the true temple who is about to be truly destroyed. The one who's going to be crucified in darkness. The one who's going to be bitten by the serpent. The one who's going to be pierced by a blade. All the language of judgment that we read in Amos and elsewhere comes to fruition and fullness as it falls on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we read through the uh, judgments of Amos, we are delighted that sin does not win, that God's justice is done. Yet we are conscious that we see ourselves in some form in many of the sins depicted there, and so we glory afresh at the beginning of Holy Week that our just King, the true Israel, we glory that he embodied his people, that he might die their death. Jesus, crushed for me, destroyed for me, exiled for me, cut for me. And friends, that brings deep assurance and peace, or at least it should. Luther, Martin Luther, the uh, reformer, uh, wrote um, a commentary on the book of Galatians. And in that commentary, uh, he wrote this. I've always found it very helpful. This is the most joyous of all doctrines and the one that contains the most comfort. It teaches that we have the indescribable and inestimable mercy and love of God He sent his son into the world, heaped all the sins of his people upon him, and said to him, Be Peter the denier. Be Paul the persecutor, blasphemer, and assaulter. Be David the adulterer. Be the sinner who ate the apple in paradise. Be the thief on the cross. In short, be the person of all my people, the one who has committed the sins of all my people." You see, for every reflection of myself I see in Amos, I rejoice afresh in the Lord Jesus who embodied his people and bore uh, our judgment. I know when I look at the Lord Jesus on that Good Friday in a few days' time, I will hear at the back of my mind the Father saying to Jesus, Be thou Paul White, the envious, the regretful, the impatient, the short-tempered, the dot, dot, dot. Good thing to do on Good Friday. 
is to insert your name. Be thou, the Father says, Lord Jesus, be thou, dot, 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 the, dot, dot, dot. And take his judgment for him. Amos confronts us with the compassion of God for his broken world and his justice against the sin which breaks it. The cross confronts us with the highest expression of the compassion of God for us as he bears our sin and serves its penalty. Luther went on to say, uh, actually this was a, a separate letter that Luther wrote, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness, I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. In forgiveness, God's compassion picks us up and reminds us that there is no curse to crush us because it crushed Jesus. And it sets us on our feet again as those ransomed and restored, empowered by our risen Savior. Because, you see, much more briefly, Jesus, as the righteous Israel, did not stay dead. He conquered death to rise as the new Israel reborn and to rebuild and renew a new Israel in him and through him, just as Amos foresaw. Thanks, brother. Next slide. And so we get, secondly, the beginning of the new with the resurrection of a new Israel, which is what verses 11 to 15 are all about. In, the, in that day, Amos says, in the day after the full extent of the curses have fallen on the true Israel, a new Israel will be restored and rebuilt. The land will be renewed. David's fallen tent, verse 11, will become a united dynasty of people, indeed a people drawn from foreign lands, verses 12. There'll be a, a revival of a new Israel to be located in the renewal of a, a new land, a place of abundance, joy, and security. New wine dripping from the mountains. Did that ring any bells with Cana, the wedding at Cana? It did with me. Interesting, isn't it, the first miracle of Jesus recorded by John, which reveals his glory and, and calls the disciples to put their faith in him, is this, uh, this turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, uh, which has always struck me, sometimes comes across as a little bit like a party trick, you know, um, just so here's something I can do, or, or this wonderful sort of divine sommelier who can bring uh, great wine, Jesus' miracles always point to something greater than a party trick. Is this not the picture of Jesus now beginning to turn the water, as it were, into wine? The new wine of the kingdom is coming with the coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the death and resurrection of Jesus that fully releases the promise of Amos 9, 11 to 15. The resurrection of Jesus is the resurrection, you see, of the true Israel. And the beginning of the new Israel of all who are now united to the true Israel by faith. And that can mean they can be both Jew and they can be Gentile. And we see the fulfillment on this. We won't look there now, but if you read uh, uh, Acts 15, uh, there's a council in Jerusalem, and they're saying, well, what can we do about the Gentiles wanting to join the church? Do they have to become Jews? And Peter is talking about his experience with Cornelius, uh, the Gentile, becoming uh, a Christian. And um, James, it is, in Acts 15, says, well, no, they don't need to you know, necessarily be circumcised or become Jewish in um, uh, become Jewish because, and he cites Amos. He cites these verses from Amos. God is now calling Jew and Gentile, and we get right with God. We become part of Israel through faith now in the true Israel, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true Israel, and the church becomes the Israel of God as it unites to him. So God's promise to Abraham 
to bring healing to a broken world through restoring a people to himself and by making them channels of his peace is being fulfilled in and through the church. Dan wrote, uh, again, his uh, weekly letter. If you haven't had a chance to see it, I commend it to you. It's uh, on the back there if it's not sent to you electronically. And he started with this incredibly stark fact. He said this, apparently 70% of the UK's 16 to 29-year-olds identify as having no religion. That is huge and shows what a challenge it is to be those who have faith and seek to share our faith in our communities. So please be praying for our youth work and outreach with young people. It is critical and much contested in a world in which it is hard to grow up walking in the way of Christ. As one writer said, this final word tells us that it still makes sense to hope, even as we read statistics like that. It is an audacious hope, but it is a right hope. We hope because God has fulfilled, is fulfilling, and will fulfill the promises of Amos 9, 11 to 15. He is still the God of compassion. He's still faithful to his promise to Abraham in the world. He will renew a worldwide people and renew the world when he returns. And what stops that from being wishful thinking? It is the resurrection of Christ, the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ. That is why we are Easter people. It is the resurrection of Christ where we can look and see the foundation stone of the new Israel being rebuilt. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning. Rooted in history, it grounds our hope. And as those who have received God's healing forgiveness, we receive too that call to make his healing love known and to model his healing love in renewed lives of service and justice and compassion. And we'll be empowered to do that insofar as we are hopeful, even in the face of, at the moment, a country where so many are not yet worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we are a hopeful people because we are an Easter people. And we are a hopeful people as we remember the Lord Jesus and his death for us and as we rejoice in our own forgiveness so we are empowered to be compassionate towards others. And as we remember afresh the resurrection of Jesus, so our hope is well rooted. God's people will be rebuilt. Justice will win. The land will be renewed. Fully and finally when he one day returns. And the resurrection is the guarantee. The resurrection are the first fruits. The resurrection is the historical reality that points to this truth of rebuilt and renewal becoming a historical reality and one day fully and finally being a historical reality. We are Easter people. We are resurrection people. And that makes us a people of audacious hope. Amen.